Hey guys, it's True Crime Taurus Hannah here, coming at you with my very first podcast episode. I'm so excited about this. Hopefully it becomes something I can do every week because it's something I feel so passionate about. I'm like you guys. I listen to YouTubers and podcasters and audiobooks about the crazy, crazy things that go on in this world. I get so baffled by them and there's nothing I love more than talking about it. So let's talk about it. Today, we'll be talking about the Appalachian Trail murders of Jeff Hood and Molly LaRue. The Appalachian Trail is a 2,100-plus mile hiking trail that spans from Georgia all the way to Maine. And when I say hiking trail, I don't mean a fun state park kind of trail. This is an intense commitment for those who choose to take it on. It can take upwards of six months to hike it in its entirety. It goes through mountains and valleys, heavy woods and rough terrain. These hikers are typically very experienced and are fully equipped with gear and supplies so they can brave the wilderness during the trip. A very small percentage of Appalachian trailers actually take on the entire trail from start to finish, and even fewer take on the trail from the northern end to the southern end. This story is about a series of those rare hikers who take on the trail from north to south, how they connected along the way, and the horrors that would fall on two of them. In the early morning hours of Thursday, September 13, 1990, in Duncan, Pennsylvania, two hikers, 25-year-old Molly LaRue and 26-year-old Jeff Hood, experienced what many would describe as a pure nightmare. There's still so much unknown about what really happened in the moments leading up to the incident, but what we do know is that the couple was found inside the Thelma Parks lean-to, which was an open-sided lean-to that only had a floor and three sides. I've posted a picture of it on my Instagram page. You can find it there. The Thelma Marks lean-to was about 30 feet off the trail. Inside, Jeff was found laying in the corner on the floor, seemingly still asleep, with his head on a makeshift pillow, with three gunshot wounds to his chest, dead. And Molly was found behind the lean-to, bound by her feet and her neck in a pool of her own blood, having been tortured, raped, and stabbed eight times to the chest and her neck, also dead. So, That's a little bit about what the case looked like. It was a pretty heavy start to the story here, so let's rewind a little bit and see how Jeff and Molly met, their decisions that led them to taking on the Appalachian Trail, and more heartbreakingly, what we know their final days looked like. Jeff and Molly met in Kansas, where they both worked for a church organization. Molly was very artistic and actually won a couple different art competitions throughout high school. Jeff was at one point a rock climbing instructor who was known for being patient and even-tempered. These two absolutely loved and respected nature in the outdoors. Jeff worked at a scout ranch in New Mexico for a time, and Molly at one point worked in Arizona providing wilderness therapy for people, which I didn't even know was a thing, but sounds amazing. They eventually started spending a lot of time together and became a couple. When they found out they were going to sadly be laid off from their jobs, they wanted to take a break and experience something new together. So, on June 4th of 1990, 
they began their journey on the Appalachian Trail in Maine. There's this really amazing article written by a man named Earl Swift. It's called Murder on the Appalachian Trail. It's his first-hand account of his time on the trail in 1990, where he actually met Molly and Jeff and was with them a couple different times in the weeks leading up to their murder. On the trail, there are these stops periodically every couple miles where there's either a wooden lean-to or a small cabin or clearing where hikers usually either stop for the night or make meals and set up camp. At these stops, there are usually logbooks where hikers can leave tips or comments for other hikers following behind them, um, but a lot of the time, hikers will use this as a way to communicate with other people on the trail. So, in the article, Earl Swift says that the first time he quote-unquote met Molly and Jeff was actually from these logbooks. Earl was a few days behind Molly and Jeff on the trail, so for a while when he would stop at these periodic stops and read the logbooks, they would be just ahead of him leaving logs, um, messages, funny poems, or jokes. He talked about his very first reaction with Molly was when she was almost annoyingly happy in this logbook, which I think is hilarious. He says, you know, he was sweaty and blistered and exhausted from hiking for days on end, and then to come up to a stop and to see a cheerful poem written by some girl a few days ahead of you was just obnoxiously happy. It wasn't until almost two weeks into Earl's hike that he eventually caught up to the people ahead of him on the trail. This was when he formally met Molly and Jeff in person. Earl tells them that he had seen their logs along the way, and he felt like he already knew them. Molly was described as being blonde with dimples, funny and bubbly, and Jeff kind of had this rugged outdoorsman thing going on for him. He was tall and thin with a beard and a thick Tennessee accent. He carried around one of the best hiking backpacks at the time, um, and it had a distinct green color to it, which later helped identify the killer. Earl also writes about this one particularly rude and annoying other hiker that ended up being with them in a group for a couple days um, and spent the night in one of the lean-tos with them one night. Um, and he just drove everyone else absolutely crazy. But he recounts that Molly and Jeff kept positive about it and really avoided the negativity and avoided the drama that was brought on by this other hiker. This is one of the small accounts that Earl describes, but it really stuck out to me because it speaks highly of Molly and Jeff's character. It seems like it's always the best people who come to these horrible ends. On September 6th, 1990, just seven days before the murders, a man walked into a library in East Berlin, Pennsylvania, only about 50 miles from the crime scene in DeCannon. He was inquiring about some hiking maps. The librarian there gave him the hiking information, and while at the library, he writes the name Casey Horn into the guestbook. We later find out that this was a fake name he used because he was on the run for a murder committed in Florida. This man was really 38-year-old Paul David Cruz. Let's take a second here to talk about Paul David Cruz and what led him to even being on the trail that September. He was on the run from the police due to another murder he committed in Florida 
four years earlier in 1986. In July of that year, a woman who had offered to give Cruz a ride home was found completely naked, almost decapitated, laying on railroad tracks. He was later found to be driving that victim's Oldsmobile to his brother's home. From there, he pretty much started running and hiding from the law, which I guess one does after you brutally murder someone for no reason. Before that, he was married to a woman named Karen Brock, but they had gotten divorced in 1978 after he apparently attacked her and held a bayonet to her neck. He was married once before that, but got divorced in 1974 after getting discharged from the Marine Corps. He's described as a very quiet and secretive person who was known to just kind of disappear from time to time. He lived this almost nomadic kind of lifestyle, never really staying in the same place for long and hitchhiking all over the country. He was also known to be particularly messy, always leaving trash and beer cans lying around. Fast forward to September 11th of 1990, just two days before the murders. An Appalachian Trail Conservancy employee named Karen Lutz recalls seeing a bearded man walking along the road towards the trails. Judging from the way he was dressed, he was wearing jeans and combat boots and a button-up shirt. She knew that there's no way he was a hiker on the trail. She just figured he was maybe a hitchhiker or a drifter. She also recalled him carrying two bright red small gym bags and a backpack. She says he kept his head down, walked right past her, and carried on his way. That was that. There's no way she could have known that this was Paul David Cruz and that he was carrying what would later become the murder weapons, a 22 caliber revolver and a 9-inch knife. Sometime in the day and a half from when Karen Lutz saw him in the time of the murders, he made his way to the Thelma Marks lean-to. Like I said in the beginning of the episode, there's so much that is unknown about when exactly he met Molly and Jeff and why he attacked them. Did he pose as another hiker and ask to rest with them? Did they say something that upset him? Did he wait for them to fall asleep before slowly deciding to attack? Or did he stalk them in the woods before choosing to take their lives? We just don't know. Later in the day, on September 13th, after the murders, a couple of fellow hikers named Biff and Cindy Bowen came upon the Thelma Marks stop to rest, and they found the bodies of Jeff and Molly. They immediately hiked down to the police station and had to hike, had to hike back up the trail to show them where the bodies were. It took them hours to clear out trees and brush to make room for emergency vehicles to get to the crime scene. Cruz was found and arrested eight days later near Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, just off the trail. He was carrying Jeff Hood's distinct green backpack and was wearing Jeff's boots and had both murder weapons in his possession. While there was plenty of evidence linking Cruz to the murder, there's no motive as to why he chose to kill these two. He was never willing to say much about the murders. He stayed really reserved and unwilling to give information or even defend himself for that matter. According to Paul Cruz's lawyer during the trial, he made these attacks 
attacks because he was a, quote, troubled man. He would take a quart of Jim Beam and a cigarette pack full of cocaine and just go hiking. While he would hike, he would get really high, and when he was coming down off the high, he would have really violent episodes, and he just wasn't in his right mind. So the whole defense was based on the fact that he wasn't in his right mind when committing the acts. This, thankfully, did not fly with the court, combined with the fact that he was a known violent person and already on the run from the law. He was convicted for their murders on two counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to death by lethal injection. However, in 2006, he went back to court where Molly's father, Jim LaRue, forgave Paul Cruz for what he did. He basically said that Cruz was exactly the kind of deeply troubled person that Molly would try to help, and for that reason, he had to forgive him. In this hearing, Cruz's death sentence was retracted and changed to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. In the year following the murders, on Mother's Day of 1991, Jeff Hood's mom completed the hike that her son had started. And since the murders in 1990, the Thelma Marks lean-to has been destroyed. So tell me what you guys think about this case. I think it's absolutely heartbreaking because there was no reason for it whatsoever. Paul Cruz didn't have motive. He wasn't a serial killer. He had no M.O. or method to his madness. This was a senseless and random killing of two wonderful people who were pretty much in the wrong place at the wrong time. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeTaurus. That's at True Crime, T-A-U-R-U-S. Leave me comments about what you think of this case and what you would like to hear in the future. Again, thank you guys so much for listening. Like I said, this is my very first recorded podcast. I'm so excited to see where it will go. So be sure to follow me and tell all your friends. Until next time.